is the word of the Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Uh, I don't think we had a chance to say hello to the people that we're sitting next to and sitting with. Can we say hello? Greet one another. Morning. Morning. Welcome to our service. Uh, well, at this point in John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 13, Jesus has anywhere from about 24 to 48 more hours to live. Uh, this hour that Jesus spoke of, uh, the hour where the Son of Man is to be lifted up, the hour when Jesus is to be glorified, this glorification that Jesus spoke of all throughout the Gospel is now finally upon him. Jesus knows that he is going to have to die soon. So, what does Jesus do, knowing that he has about 24 to 48 hours? What does he do? Well, Jesus isn't out on the streets of Judea preaching. He isn't going from village to village healing. Instead, what Jesus does is he spends his last days with his closest friends. He has a meal with them, most likely the Passover meal. And he washes the feet of his disciples. And he gives to his disciples this farewell speech. Now, what's commonly called the farewell discourse in John begins from John chapter 13, verse 31, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 17. And so this big chunk right in the middle of John from 13 to 17 is actually this one long speech that's taking place as Jesus is about to bid farewell. About 25% of the entire gospel. And so we can see how important this speech is. This speech, beginning in verse 31, speaks of Jesus' glorification, how he is now to be glorified and how God is to be glorified in him. He talks about how the disciples are no longer going to be able to follow him during this time. And Jesus, in verse 34, he says this, launching into this discourse. Chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I know for Christians, this is a very, very familiar teaching. You, you've heard it before, and you know, I think many of us, we know it. But I want to spend some time this morning really unpacking this verse. And uh, to do that, I'm going to use three things. We'll look at three things. First, I want to define what love is. And second, I want to give an example of love. And third, I want to speak on the power of love. And so first, defining love. What does love mean? What does love mean? What is Jesus actually commanding his disciples to do? Well, we know that love can mean a whole host of things, right? The semantic range for the word love is, is pretty wide. 
right? It can speak of affection, it can speak of loyalty, it can speak of friendship, it can speak of desire, right? Uh, for example, I can say, I love pizza, I love my wife, I love my children, I love good stories. And these things are not in order, of course, right? And I'm not, and, and I'm, even though I'm using the word love, I'm using it in very, very different ways. In other words, I, I, I love pizza in a very different way than how I love my wife, right? They're not the same. Now, in the Old and New Testament, uh, they were able to distinguish between these different types of loves because in their original languages, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, there were different words that conveyed these meanings. They all spoke of affection and love, but they were different. Uh, they, they spoke a very different thing. So, for example, in the Greek, uh, there are these three words up here. Uh, C.S. Lewis really popularized this in his book, The Four Loves. But in the Greek, there's this word storge, and it speaks of affection. It means love, but it's a love towards family members or a group of people, a community, towards one's kinsmen. And there's another word in the Greek, eros. And eros speaks of sexual love or physical love, uh, attraction. There's another word, phileo, which where we get the word Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Though Philadelphia doesn't seem like a very lovely place. Not very lovely. Uh, but phileo means affection for a friend. For a friend, right? Now, in the Greek, there are these different words that speak of love, and they convey different meanings. But I'll tell you, in the New Testament, when the New Testament speaks of love, uh, Rarely do they use the word storge. In fact, the word storge is not even found in the New Testament just by itself. The word eros is not found, okay? Phileo is commonly found, but in the New Testament, whenever the Bible speaks of love, the love of God, or our love for each other, uh, the Bible, the New Testament uses a word that many of you might be familiar with, and it's agape. Agape. This word, is summed up, or it, it conveys a, a type of giving love. See, unlike all the other forms of love, this love, agape love, is a love that finds its affection from the source, not the object. In other words, it's a love that actually is wrought from within because of one's goodwill and one's heart. And so it's, it's this moral goodwill that proceeds from esteem, principle, or duty rather than attraction and charm. So put simply, this agape love is a giving love. It's a giving love that is not dependent on the recipient. Okay? That's why agape love is often called uh, unconditional love, right? because it's not conditioned upon anything in the object or the recipient. And so this agape love often means to love in a real undeserving way, to love the undeserving, to love despite disappointment and rejection. Agape love is a love that is determined. It's a love that doesn't fluctuate. It's a love that's constant because it doesn't depend on the recipient. Now, I know this love, this agape love that Scripture speaks of, it really challenges us to think about love in a really different way. You see, I know today, because of 
Freud's influence and you know, Hollywood's exploitation of this love, most of, most of the time when we think of love, we, we tend to really restrict it to romance, right? We think of love as something that's emotional, as uncontrollable. We think that love is something that's spontaneous. It happens without consent, right? We think that love is not deliberate and it can't be controlled. I mean, consider the way that we talk about love, right? We, we say something like this, he fell in love. And here, I have, a, I have a gif for you, or jif. Is it gif or jif? I don't know. But when, we, we use this word, he fell in love. And when we use the word he fell, or the saying he fell in love, I sort of think about this, right? This is a, a acme, this, uh, this hole. And it's this hole that uh, the, uh, the roadrunner uses on the coyote. And it's this hole that you put anywhere, and people just fall into it uh, without intention, without consent. Right? He fell in love. She fell in love. See, this captures how we visualize and conceptualize love. We think of love as something that's maddening, something that's often at odds with the mind. Right? It's Shakespeare who said that love is merely a madness. Sorry, I need to get this. How do I stop this from moving? <laughs> this is a bit distracting. Yeah, this is, this is history. I think it's the first time that we've used a GIF in an ELM. So be ready. Next week, we might use a meme. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, if you think about the way in which we normally visualize and conceptualize love, it's, it's love is this crazy, crazy thing. It's this uncontrollable emotion. It's maddening, right? We talk about how we're smitten with love. But you know, this is far from what Jesus is teaching here. You know, when Jesus is teaching about love, how he loved, and when he says to love one another, he's not saying, hey, listen, find something lovable in that person and love him. He's not saying, hey, find something attractive in that other person and love them. Jesus is not telling us to love each other uncontrollably, to love in this crazy emotional way. No, Jesus is saying, when you love, agape te them. Love them in an agape way. Love them not because of who that person is, but love them because of who you are. Love them because you are someone who has been loved by God. Love them because you have been made whole. In other words, love them because your esteem has been redeemed. Now you ought to love with that. See, that's why love in the Bible is actually a command. Right? In some monitors, we might find this to be repulsive. I mean, how can you command love? Right? I mean, isn't love supposed to be spontaneous and natural and uncontrollable? Aren't I supposed to fall into love? No. Biblical love is determined love. Agape love is a steadfast love. It's a decisive love. It's a love that begins not from the object or the recipient. It's a love that begins within the individual as he has been redeemed and as he or she has received love. Now, this is what Jesus is teaching when he calls his disciples to love one another. Now, all this is great. 
It sounds noble, it sounds good. But you know, Jesus would have been a forgotten figure in history if all he ever did was teach about love. But Jesus, as he's having this last meal, he's not only teaching about love. He's not telling them, hey, this is what love is. He's not some poet or some philosopher saying this is what love is. Jesus is talking about love because he knows that very soon he's going to embody this love. He's going to display this love. That brings us to our second point, the example of love. You see, the real reason why Jesus was in this room, the real reason why Jesus was having this last meal, the real reason why Jesus was going to the cross, the reason why he even came to earth was because he loved his people. See, Jesus loved his people with an agape love. He loved his people with the love that was not conditioned upon anything in us. But the love that Jesus displays, the love that Jesus embodies, is a love that was determined, a love that was about giving. Church, I think we must not be mistaken. Jesus was never head over heels over us. Jesus did not fall in love with us. Jesus wasn't like, you know, I don't know what it is about these sinners, but there is something so alluring about them. Jesus wasn't caught in this bad romance. He's not like the demigods of Greek mythology who come to earth and find humans to be so alluring and attractive they don't know why. No, Jesus wasn't crazy in love over us, but he was determined in love for us. You know, there's an important verse that I think is often overlooked in the Gospels. It's in Luke 9, 51. Jesus knows that he's going to have to go to the cross. And this is what the author writes. He says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was determined to love. He was determined to now go to the cross. You know, this is the part of the gospel that we must not misunderstand. Jesus loved us, and he gave himself up for us, not because of anything in us. We must never think that God's love for us is and was conditioned upon anything that we have done, that our parents have done, or that our family members have done. That's why understanding or receiving God's love as a agape love, as a giving love, is crucial for Christians. It's summed up best in Romans 5, 8. This is what Paul writes. But God demonstrates his love for us. He shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. In other words, he loved us when we were unlovable. When there was nothing desirable in us. God loved us with a powerful, with a giving, with a determined, with a steadfast, with an unconditional love. God loved us when we were unlovable. 
So this is the reason why, you know, when Jesus is teaching, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. This is a new commandment that I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. You know, we find teachings on love all throughout the Old Testament. Yes, God commands his people to love. But now, with the arrival of Christ and his impending death, this display of love is certainly a new one. You know, in the Old Testament, do you know what the command was as you love your neighbors? Do you remember the command? What's the command? To love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know how Jesus transforms this? He says, now love one another as I have loved you. He transforms it where it's not just about loving one another just as I love myself, but now it's loving one another as Jesus has loved me. In other words, Jesus is calling us, each other, to love with the same love that he loved us, with an agape love, with a giving love, with a selfless and determined love. And that brings us to the third point, the power of love. You know, Jesus, after he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. Jesus says this in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what Jesus is saying here? You know love or loving one another? It's not just for community's sake. But loving one another, there is evangelistic power in church love. In other words, as we as individuals, as we as disciples now love one another, this love is actually missional. Jesus says, by this the world will know. By this the world will know that Jesus is Lord. By this the world will be convinced of the gospel. Jesus doesn't say the world will know that you are my disciples if you love the world. You know, he doesn't say that. He says, if you love each other, then the world will know. Then the world will be convinced. In other words, a loving community is the visible authentication of the gospel. Or Francis Schaeffer said this, love is the final apologetic. As the church, as Christians, as we, disciples of Jesus, have love for one another, have this giving love for one another, then the world will know that Jesus is Lord. You know, if you think about it, all communities, all gatherings, they're all based upon a common interest or a common outlook. Right? Think about the communities that you are a part of. You have to live in the same town. You have to attend the same schools. You have to have the same hobbies, maybe the same professions. Maybe you might have to you know, enjoy the same things, have the same interests. Right? That's how normally communities are formed. Communities are formed over this common interest. But the church, you know, the church ought to be a community that welcomes all people, irrespective of background, age, gender, color, moral history, social status, influence, and intelligence. The only common thread that is to be found in the church is that we have all been loved by Jesus. 
And by that alone, we become a community. The church is, or should I say the church ought to be a community of the most random people, a community of the most weirdest people who have the most weirdest personalities and quirks with different backgrounds and traits. Yet because of Jesus, we come together and we love each other. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. When people who outside of Christ would have no commonalities, no reason to gather, no reason to even hang out with one another, when the gospel brings these people together, we show the world that this gospel is true, that Jesus is Lord. You know, practically speaking, if I can just be a little practical with you guys, I think this is true of our community. I think this is true of ELM. I mean, look around, look around you. I know, I know we all sort of look the same. But ELM, I have to say, is a uh, church of a real random group of people. And in fact, it's a weird group of people. Okay. And I'm sure you probably figured out that I'm weird too. Okay. Yes. In my own cool New York way. Yes, I am weird. But, you know, when I first came to this church a couple of years back, now almost two years, um, yeah, I found it's a weird group of people. We, the church is always a group of just weird people who've come together. Now, I've noticed particularly about this church, I hope not to offend, but there are people here, our congregants here, have very, very strong personalities. Very, very strong personalities. You know, when I first started attending leaders' meetings, and, you know, these strong personalities started to come out, I was, I, was, uh, I was alarmed. I was, in fact, scared. I thought, like, oh, these people are fighting in meetings. But then I just figured out, you know, they just have these strong personalities. They just have these really strong personalities, which is okay. Which is okay. We all have unique quirks. We all represent different backgrounds. We all have different personalities. We all have different tastes. Some are Republicans, some are Democrats. Some are old, some are young, Gen Xers and millennials. We all grew up in different, with different backgrounds and we're all very different. We all have different interests. But this is exactly what the church is supposed to be. The church, Jesus' disciples, the community of God, supposed to be a random group of people who have nothing in common but who come together because they have been loved by Jesus. You know, when the church started taking off in the book of Acts, thousands of people started to come to Jesus, right? And you can imagine just the, the random group of people that the church was, young and old, you know, rich and poor, people from all different social statuses, right? And you know how the book of Acts describes this church? It's in Acts 4.32. It says this, now the full number of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his. But they had everything in common. They had everything in common. I find this to be paradoxical because the church, there's no way that they had everything in common. No way that they had everything in common. We're talking about thousands of people here. But the book of Acts describes them as having everything in common. Why? Because they were all gathered together under the banner of Christ's love. They were all gathered together because of Jesus. And for them, 
that meant they had everything in common. Everything. And so, friends, look around once again. Look around to the church, to our church particularly, to the people that you're sitting next to. The random group of faces, the random names and the different personalities, the different traits, the different quirks, the different tics. And whatever standards and preconditions and rules that we might have to love, Christ is calling us to lay these things go. I know we say things like, you know, I hate it when so-and-so does this, or I hate it when this person does this. I don't like it when someone does this. This gets on my nerves. But Jesus is calling us to let those things go. Jesus, when he calls us to agape love, he's telling us not to establish our love upon any condition, not to base our love on anything in that person, but to love as Jesus has loved us. And you know why this is important for the church? You know why it's really dangerous if we don't take on agape love? If we start setting up these rules and if we start setting up these standards, you know, for me to love you, you at least have to be at this level. You know why this is such a dangerous thing if we don't practice agape love? If we start loving people because they're lovable or if we start loving people because we're attracted to them, you know why there's danger in that? Because we'll start to think that God loved us because we were lovable. And for us, to really understand what Jesus has done for us, we must love the unlovable. Because by loving the unlovable, we are remembering that we too were unlovable. God shows his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, in closing, I find Jesus' actions and discourse in chapter 13 to be real fascinating because at this point in John 13, Jesus is about to pour out his life. Right? He's about to give himself up as an act of love. Right? And he says, love one another as I have loved you. And he's talking about the love which he's going to love them with. But do you know what this commandment is sandwiched in between? This, this command follows Two very difficult realities, two very harsh and hard realities. It begins first by Jesus talking about one of his close disciples, the one who was in charge of, of, of the funds. He's actually going to betray Jesus. One of his close friends is going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then, Right after this command, he talks about what? Peter, his closest disciple, is going to what? He is going to deny Jesus. This commandment of love is actually sandwiched in between betrayal and denial. Jesus is going to face betrayal and denial by his closest friends. He's going to be backstabbed. But in between that, what does Jesus say? Love one another as I have loved you. You know, I thought about this, like, Jesus, what's going through your mind right now as you're talking about love, as you're saying, you know what, I'm going to love you with an eternal love. I'm going to love you with this giving love. How can you love in this way, Jesus? 
You know, what, you know what the author of John tells us in John 3? He says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given, him all, given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. You know why Jesus is able to love in this way? Because he was so secure in himself. Jesus knew that the Father had already given him all things. He knew where he was coming from, and he knew where he was going. And that was enough for Jesus to love his friends, to love his betrayer, to love those who would soon run away from him. Friends, can we love on this basis? Can we love on the basis that God has given us all things? Can we love on the basis knowing that we have come from God? Yes, and we are going to God. That in Jesus all things have been given to us. Can we love on this basis? In the face of betrayal, denial. In the face of hatred. In the face of the unlovable. Can we love one another because we know that God has given us I want to conclude with just these few verses that's found in John's epistle. Later on, as he writes to the church, to a family, to a household, he writes this. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. <clears throat> Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray.